Joel chapter 2. We'll read verses 28 through 32 to begin. It says, After this I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my Spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awe-inspiring day of Yahweh comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved, for there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. As Yahweh promised, among the survivors, Yahweh calls. Yahweh bless His word to our hearts today. It's great to be back today to continue to study the Bible. I love to study the Bible. I've really enjoyed examining what the Bible actually means in all of these sun, moon, and stars judgment texts. It's good to read what the Bible says, and it's important to know what the Bible says. It's even more important to know what the Bible means. Very important to know what the Bible means. Now, if you missed part three in this series that I've been teaching on the what's commonly called the blood moons. If you missed that or if you missed any of those parts, I'd ask that you go back and listen to it on the website. It's not something I can force you to do, but it's something I would ask you to do if you missed any of those parts. And mainly, it would be great if you just read the text of Scripture. Um, After this lesson today, I'll be putting the entirety of my study notes and my sermon notes up on the website, you can read them, take your time, go through with them with an open Bible and check and and be a Berean. And I believe the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened by allowing the Scriptures to interpret the Scriptures. Some of the things I'm going to get into tonight are new to me. I never know when I study a subject where the Bible is going to lead me in my understanding. And it's Yahweh leading and guiding me through His Word. There's some things I'm going to present tonight that you may be hearing for the first time. Maybe not, but you might be hearing for the first time. I would just ask, all I can ask of you is just to be a Berean. To receive the Word with readiness of mind, with eagerness, and then examine the Scriptures daily to see if what Matthew says is so. If the Apostle Paul could be examined by what he said in Acts 17, then, man, Matthew can definitely be examined. I'm far from an apostle, not at all. Just a servant, just Brother Matthew. That's all I want you to call me. Just call me Brother. Okay. So, But I want you just to be a Berean with what I'm going to share today. I want to make an important point before we get started today, and that is this. This series, and this is the last part in the series, is way more than just about blood moons. It's way more. It does expose, I believe, the incorrect understanding of the lunar eclipse tetrad, they say that's what Joel 2.31 means when the moon turns to blood. I believe that this series of teachings exposes that misunderstanding, that error in teaching by other uh, ministers or other men. But this series is primarily about how to study the Bible and believe the Bible and let the Bible interpret the Bible instead of jumping on a sensationalist bandwagon or false prophetic prognostication. That's the most important thing that I want you to glean from this sermon series. We're learning to study the Bible in these lessons, how to do it. We're learning how to study and understand prophetic texts, which usually get botched 
the most in Christianity today. We're learning how to let the Bible interpret itself. We're learning how to study the Scriptures and believe the Scriptures and put our faith in the Scriptures rather than just to believe what the latest book on the New York Times bestseller list says. When we come to the Bible, we've got to let go of all our personal prejudices. Let go of all that, and we've got to love what the Bible teaches more than what we want it to teach. Get rid of emotions, experiences, what you think, what you want, what you'd like for it to say, what you'd like for it to teach, and say, Yahweh, I only want what your word has to say. And let me tell you, when you truly do that, that word will begin to blossom and to flower. And above all you're getting, you'll begin to get understanding on what the Bible is teaching on a text like Joel chapter 2. So how does all this help with Joel 2, 28-32? Well, had everyone been familiar with all of the symbolic Old Testament language of the sun, moon, and stars that's used over and over again? We went through it in the past two lessons. Had people been familiar with that, they would have never been led astray by the whole quote-unquote blood moon teaching of Mark Biltz and John Hagee, among others. They would have immediately known that it was false teaching because they would have been able to correctly interpret Joel 2 and Acts chapter 2, which we'll get to here momentarily, without having to step outside of the Bible. You could stay in the Bible and interpret them by the Bible, and I hope that this series helps people to know. This means, what this means is that a primary reason that people were misled by the whole blood moon teaching is because of a lack of study, knowledge, and foundation of the Old Testament Scriptures. That's why. The irony is, is that they were quoting the Old Testament text of Joel 2.31, but they had no understanding. Just because a person can quote the Bible doesn't mean that they're correct in their understanding. In Matthew chapter 4, the devil, whomever you believe that that was, the adversary, he quoted Scripture to Yeshua. It doesn't mean that he had the correct understanding. So don't just listen to somebody because they quote the Scriptures because they sound good or because they sound nice. Go back to the Bible. Study the Bible. That's the most important thing. So in our opening text of Joel 2, 28-32, what we see is both judgment and blessing. And if you read the whole chapter 2 of the prophet Joel, you see judgment upon some and blessing upon some. Judgment comes upon those who do not repent in Israel. They are the sun that shall be darkened, and they are the moon that turns to blood. But blessing comes upon those who do repent and call out to Yahweh. They are the ones who are delivered or saved. This judgment language involving the sun and the moon is mentioned right here in Joel 2, verse 31, like it was in all of those scriptures we went through in the last lesson. And knowing everything we've studied in the Old Testament, we can now see that Joel 2.31 is figurative language symbolizing the destruction of the rebellious within the nation of Israel. Their lights go out. They are the sun that is darkened. They are the moon that turns to blood or is destroyed. By the way, the moon turning to blood is just another way of saying that the moon will not give its light. The moon will grow dark, all of which are said in various places in the Old Testament in these judgment passages. So Joel 2.31 is not about a lunar eclipse. 
Joel 2.31 is a figure of speech depicting the judgment upon those who remain rebellious in Israel and refuse to repent. The day of Yahweh will take them unaware and they will be destroyed. Now, the Apostle Peter actually quotes the prophet Joel in Acts chapter 2. And he does so just after the gift of languages is poured out upon the apostles, possibly upon others as well, where they were able to speak in languages they had never learned. And those in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost who spoke various languages, Acts chapter 2 says, there were devout men of Judah from every nation under heaven that were at the second of the three major feasts in Israel, in Jerusalem. So they were able to hear in their own language and dialect about the wonderful works of Yahweh. That's the true gift of tongues or the gift of languages. Many people that day who saw this take place were amazed. But some people mocked, made fun. And they said, these men are drunk on new wine, fresh wine. Very intoxicating, actually, when you study it there in the Greek. After the accusation of being drunk was made, Peter stood up with the eleven, meaning the eleven apostles. Remember, Matthias took Judas's place in Acts chapter 1. So he stands up with the apostles as well. And Peter begins to proclaim his message. And let's begin reading this in Acts chapter 2, verse 15 through 16. Peter says about what's happening right then. These people are not drunk as you suppose since it's only nine in the morning or literally the third hour of the day. In other words, it's too early. We don't drink this early. There's no way that these men are drunk. Verse 16, on the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Now let's stop here for a moment. Peter is an apostle. I would say, based on the entirety of the Gospels in the New Testament, and what they say about Peter as a whole, Peter is actually a primary apostle. He actually has the revelation about Yeshua being the Messiah, the Son of Yahweh, in Matthew chapter 16, 13 through 18. He's the one that gets the revelation from the Father in heaven. And then Yeshua says, upon that rock I'll build the church. Peter is a primary apostle. He was given the keys to the kingdom by the Master. He's a leader among them. So when he stands up and he proclaims that what is taking place right then is fulfillment of Joel's prophecy right there in the first century A.D., we should believe him. He could not have said it any plainer. He said, on the contrary, the men are not drunk. What's taking place is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter quotes then Joel. I think sometimes we await a future fulfillment of certain prophecies when the fulfillment of that prophecy is recorded for us right in the New Testament. Now, I'm not saying that there are not some things yet to be fulfilled, but I am saying this. Much prophecy was fulfilled in the first century A.D. Much more than, I believe, we tend to think. And we all believe that, don't we? Think about it. We all believe that Isaiah 53 was fulfilled in the first century. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. With His stripes we are healed. We believe that that was fulfilled at the death of Christ, the death of the Messiah. That's been fulfilled. We don't await a future fulfillment of that. That's already been fulfilled. Nothing's wrong with that prophecy in Isaiah being fulfilled in the first century. 
I'm of the persuasion, after studying this, that Joel 2, 28-32, was fulfilled in the first century. All of it. Primarily because Peter, who had more knowledge of Joel than any of us, said that it was. He quoted Joel 2, what we call verses 28-32, through and right before he quoted it, he said, what's happening is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. I am persuaded that we're not awaiting a future fulfillment of Joel 2, 28-32, through just like we're not awaiting a future fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53. Now, I realize that you may have been taught at some point in your life that Joel's prophecy, Joel 2, 28-32, would be fulfilled at a future date or be fulfilled again at a future date. The reason I say that you may have been taught that if you grew up in church is because Brother Matthew was taught that when he grew up in church, that Joel's prophecy was yet to the future. But just because we were taught something does not make it so. And here's a huge point. If Joel's prophecy here was fulfilled in the first century, then that means the part about the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and remarkable day of Yahweh comes, that was fulfilled as well. In other words, back in the first century, there was a day of Yahweh, a judgment day upon the rebellious within the nation of Israel. Back in the first century, the sun was turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And what that means is that many Israelites were judged and brought down low. Why? Why were they judged? It all had to do with their rejection of Yeshua as Yahweh's Messiah. Reject Him. They are the generation that got to look at Him face to face. That's the only generation of men that have ever lived that got to look at Yeshua the Messiah face to face. He was there. They rejected Him. Imagine this. Think about this. The one that Yahweh sent to save them, they rejected. And therefore Yahweh brought down a day of Yahweh. There's many of them in the Bible. Day of Yahweh is not just a one-time event. There's many days of Yahweh in the Bible. And they were judged because they rejected the Messiah. Reject Him, be judged, receive Him, accept Him, be delivered. And that's what Joel 2 is all about, according to the Apostle Peter. And that's what was happening right there on the day of Pentecost. Some accepted, few accepted, many, many rejected. Now, we've often heard, I did growing up a lot about Acts chapter 2. And we heard Acts 2.41 where it says, Then they who received his word, Peter's word, were baptized, and that day were added to them 3,000 souls. We've heard that. I think a lot of you have heard that growing up. In other words, they received the Messiah, the message about the Messiah. What about all the other souls in, in, at the day of Pentecost that day? There were many, many more people than just 3,000 at the feast. What about all the other souls there that day in Acts 2? They were there in Jerusalem for the feast, for the day of Pentecost, the second of the three annual festivals in Israel. Most of the souls that day in Israel rejected Yeshua as the Messiah. Only a few of them received Him. 3,000. Tens, probably hundreds of thousands did not. 3,000 did. We often only hear about the 3,000 and we don't think about the many that rejected Him. But that is the case. When souls accept Him, 
there are always more souls that reject Him. Always. Now, it doesn't matter as long as the Word is preached. It doesn't matter if one gets saved or if a thousand gets saved because if the Word's preached, it's a sweet-smelling savor to Yahweh. That's what makes the difference if the Word is preached. So, let's keep reading in Acts 2, verse 17. Peter just told those listening to him that day what was taking place right then was what Joel prophesied about. And he quotes directly from Joel 2, 28-32, beginning in Acts 2, 17. Uh, let's look at Acts 2, verse 17. It says, And it will be in the last days, says the Mighty One, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Now, I have to stop right here in verse 17 and make some comments. Peter uses the phrase, in the last days. Now, I remember growing up my entire childhood life in church and hearing back in the 1980s, I was born in 1981, hearing in the 1980s and in the 1990s that we lived in the last days. I remember hearing the preacher sometimes say that we were in the last of the last days. That was often said at church. Usually the comment was made because some kind of war had broke out. There was an earthquake somewhere. There was some kind of catastrophe. Some new modern invention was created. Or he may have watched a TV program and interpreted the Bible by what was on 2020 or the nightly news. But I will tell you what was never done. At least I can't remember any preacher I heard growing up doing this. I never heard them go to the Bible and allow the Bible to define what it meant by the phrase, the last days. I realize that many people want to be the ones to live in the last days. Many people throughout history have believed that they were the ones living in the last days. There was a man by the name of Charles Taylor. He believed he lived in the last days, the last of the last days, back in summer of 1992. Listen to what he wrote in his magazine, Bible Prophecy News. Quote, What you are starting to read probably is my final issue of Bible Prophecy News. For Bible Prophecy fulfillments indicate that Jesus Christ our Lord will most likely return for us at the rapture of the church before the fall 1992 issue can be printed. End of quote. Charles R. Taylor. Now I was 11 years old at the time Mr. Taylor wrote that. I'm 34 now. But Mr. Taylor isn't the only man who believed that he lived in the last days. Back in the 1500s, there was a man named Hugh Latimer, and he believed that he was living in the last days. And He wrote, All those excellent learned men, which without doubt God had sent into the world in these latter days to give the world warning, all these men do gather out of Scripture that the last day cannot be far off. In 1549, Latimer preached in the presence of King Edward VI that the end of the world is near at hand. Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of iniquity is revealed. The latter day is at hand. Later in a sermon before the Duchess of Suffolk, Latimer said, St. Paul says, The Lord will not come till the swerving of the faith comes, which thing is already done and past. Antichrist is known throughout all the world, wherefore the day is not far off. In 1552, in a sermon on Luke 21, verse 25, Latimer said that the rings around the sun and eclipses in his time signified that this fearful day is not far off. So Latimer believed he lived in the last days in the 1500s. 
But what about another man named Cyril of Jerusalem? He believed that he lived in the last days back in 350 A.D. Over 1,000 years before Mr. Latimer. Cyril of Jerusalem believed that the Antichrist was coming soon. And he wrote this, But this aforesaid Antichrist is to come when the times of the Roman Empire shall have been fulfilled and the end of the world is now drawing near. And again he wrote, This therefore is the falling away and the enemy is soon to be looked for. Now somebody is wrong here. Cyril of Jerusalem believed the end of the world drew near in 350 A.D. He believed he was living in the last days. Hugh Latimer believed the final coming of Christ was near in the 1500s. Charles Taylor believed that a rapture would take place in 1992. But, what if we just left all of this speculation off and allowed the Bible to speak for itself? What if we let the Bible... That's a novel idea, isn't it? What if we let the Bible define the phrase the last days for us instead of self-professed prophets and prognosticators today? What if we quit interpreting the Bible by first running to what's happening in the news and instead first go to the Bible? Well, I will tell you this. I will warn you of this. You will make a lot of people upset if you do that. If you place your faith in Scripture and what it says about the last days, instead of reading the news on the Internet or watching the news on TV and thinking that every earthquake, tsunami, new invention in technology, or war in the Middle East means that you're living in the last days right now, people will get upset with you for letting the Bible interpret the Bible. But we should care little about how people react and care much about the integrity of Scripture and honoring Yahweh because He comes first in all things. Going back to Acts two seventeen, Peter says, and it will be in the last days, says the Mighty One. Then he goes on to quote Joel's prophecy just after he told those at the feast then. What Joel wrote about is taking place right now. Peter is saying that he and those around him at that time were living in the last days. Peter was saying, this is what Joel spoke about. This is what will happen in the last days and we're in them right now. Now I realize that might not fit into our mindset of prophecy or end time events, but that's what Peter says. The last days were happening back in the first century A.D. Let's examine a few passages parallel to Acts 2.17. Look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 2a. And remember, the author of Hebrews wrote his work in the first century A.D. Remember this. A lot of times we read the Bible and we think when we read it that it's written directly to us. And no doubt, things that were written beforehand are there for our examples and our learning. And we can pull out principles and application to them. But there are many things that were written to the recipients that first received the letter. Think about it. If Sister Dorothy writes me a letter and she addresses it to me, that letter is to me. Now somebody 2,000 years later may read that letter and may find some good things that they can apply to their life in the letter, but that letter was not written to them. It was written to me. 
the author of Hebrews has a target audience in the first century that he's writing to. Keep that in mind as we go through these texts. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2a. He says, Long ago, the Mighty One spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. I want you to notice the contrast. Long ago, the author's writing means in the times of the prophets. People like Elijah, Isaiah, Moses. Long ago, He spoke to the Israelites through the prophets. But in contrast, in these last days, He speaks by His Son. The author of Hebrews is writing this to an audience in the first century, and he calls the time that Yahweh speaks through His Son, these last days. The author is referencing the ministry of Yeshua when He walked the earth and ministered and preached. And Yahweh spoke through Yeshua. The last days is a reference to the first century A.D., just like in Acts 2.17. Let's look at another one from Apostle Peter. This one's in 1 Peter 1, 18-20. It says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Messiah, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the times for you. Now we read that, and we know that Yeshua died for us as well. But that was written to people that Peter targeted his letter to, scattered Israelites in the first century. And he was saying the Messiah and His precious blood was destined before the foundation of the world. But He was revealed, that word revealed or manifested, made known, came on the scene at the end of the times for you. The New Living Translation translates this phrase in verse 20 as in these last days He has been revealed. New American Standard Bible has He has appeared in these last times. Peter believed that the last days or the end of the times was in the first century ministry of Yeshua the Messiah. Remember that Peter initially wrote his epistle to scattered Israelites living in the first century. I realize that this may be the first time you've ever heard anything like this. But realize something. I'm not speculating based upon current events. I'm just using the Bible to define the phrase last days. That's all I'm doing. It's that simple. Look at this one from the Apostle John. 1 John two eighteen. He writes, remember he has an initial audience then when he wrote. He was writing it to people that lived in his day. And he says, children, it is the last hour And as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. We know from this that it is the last hour. Right now. When John's writing, it's the last hour right now. And you've heard Antichrist is coming, but then he tells what really is true, even now, in John's day, many Antichrists have come. Do you know the word Antichrist or Antichrists is only mentioned in the writings of John? And it's never a single individual. It's always multiple people. It's anyone that does not believe a few things. That Yeshua is the Messiah. That He has come in the flesh. And they deny the Son. 
If you do those things, John's saying you're anti-Christ, against Christ instead of Christ. And John said they're here right now. It's the last hour. That's even more potent than the last days. It sounds to me like these men, Peter, the author of Hebrews, Apostle John, all believed they were living in the last days. And it wasn't that they just believed it. They knew it for a fact. Because some of these men lived and walked with the Messiah. They were not wrong in their assessment. I don't have this one in my notes, but I want to turn to one in Hebrews chapter 9. You can turn if you like, or you can listen and look at it later. Hebrews 9 verse 26. I'm just going to read one verse. You can read 20 before it and 20 after it in your Bible study. Hebrews 9 26. The author says, Otherwise he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. The author's talking about the death of Christ and how it's a one-time death. And it's not year after year like the other sacrifices in the Old Testament. Otherwise he would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world, but now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. The author in Hebrews chapter 9 is saying that the time when Yeshua was crucified was the end of the ages. You can check that out. Back to Acts chapter 2. I veered away from Acts 2, but for good reason. Most people in Christianity today are looking for a future fulfillment of Joel 2, 28-32. But Peter said it happened in the first century. Most people in Christianity think the last days are happening in their lifetime right now. And you know what? That's nothing new. When you study history, don't be blind to history. When you study history, people have thought that in every single century. Cyril of Jerusalem thought it was around the year 350. Hugh Latimer believed it was in the late 1500s. Charles Taylor thought it was 1992. A lot of people thought it was the year 2000. I kind of thought that it might have been the year 2000 back then. I can show you people on earth thought the end of the world happened at the first millennium. Harold Camping thought it was May 21st, 2011. John Hagee thought it was 2014 to 2015. But Peter, the author of Hebrews and the Apostle John, said that the last days were in the first century. Maybe, just maybe, we've completely botched the Bible's teaching about the last days. Maybe, just maybe, many of the prophecies that we are expecting to be fulfilled in the future have already been fulfilled in the past. Maybe this sun being darkened and moon turning to blood prophecy in Joel 2.31 took place in the first century like Peter said it did when he quoted Joel in Acts 2, 15-17. Let's go back now to Acts 2, 17-18 where it says, And it will be in the last days, Peter saying right then, says the Mighty One, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days and they will prophesy. This all happened in the book of Acts. Yahweh poured out His spirit upon men and women right here in Acts chapter 2 and all through the book of Acts. They prophesied. In Acts 2, they prophesied in other languages. That's a form of prophecy. They saw visions. They dreamed dreams. Read the book of Acts or reread the book of Acts. 
And you'll see things like this time and time again. Dreams, visions, prophecies, men, women, servants. All of this happened. Verse 19, I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. Did you know that many wonders did indeed take place in the first century? There were wonders seen in the heavens above. For example, there was a star that led the wise men to the Messiah when he was a child in Matthew chapter 2. The appearances of the angels proclaimed the birth of the Messiah to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. There were even comets that appeared in the heavens back in the first century. The very famous, if not the most famous, Halley's Comet actually made its appearance in in 66 A.D., four years before the destruction of Jerusalem. Flavius Josephus mentions in his book, Wars of the Judahites 6.5.3, that prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, there was a star in the heavens that resembled a sword, and it stood over the city, and also a comet that continued for an entire year, Josephus records. There were not only signs and wonders in the heavens in the first century, there were signs and wonders on the earth. Think about all the miracles that Yeshua and His apostles performed in the first century. That's signs and wonders on the earth. You don't get any bigger than the miracles that He performed. Unless you want to talk about His apostles when they performed the same miracles on a greater scale because they were told in the book of John that they would do greater works than Yeshua did. Not meaning greater in potency, but on a greater scale. And they did them in the book of Acts. They did them. What about at the death of Yeshua? Here's a sign on the earth. The earth quaked. The rocks split. The veil inside of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Tombs opened up. And many of the saints that had been laid to rest in death were raised up and went into the holy city and appeared to many. You can read about that at the end of Matthew chapter 27. There were plenty of signs and wonders on the earth in the first century. The blood, the fire, and the cloud of smoke here likely refers to the bloody deaths of those who lived in Jerusalem in the first century when the Roman armies came in and ransacked Jerusalem and pillaged and plundered the temple, leaving no stone upon another, just like Yeshua had said would happen in Matthew chapter 24. Slaughtering thousands upon thousands of rebellious, unbelieving Israelites in 67 to 70 A.D. Setting the city on fire, its belongings on fire, and leaving nothing but a cloud of smoke after its destruction. That's what the Roman armies did there in the first century. A day of Yahweh. Judgment day upon the unbelieving Israelites. I don't have time to get into this tonight, but in Matthew chapter 24, Yeshua tells His followers, if you compare it with Luke 21, which is a parallel passage, which is the Olivet Discourse, He tells them when you see the Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem, let him who is in Judea flee to the mountains. And the Christian Israelites did that in the first century. And they fleed to a place named Pella across the Jordan River and there was not one single believing Israelite left in Jerusalem when the Roman armies came in and destroyed that place and the temple Why were they not there? Because they obeyed the Messiah. And when they saw the Roman armies coming around Jerusalem, they fled to the mountains. 
And I know sometimes we think that a lot of these things are yet in the future. But the more that I study, these things have already taken place in the past. Look at Acts 2, 20-21. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great remarkable day of Yahweh comes. Then whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Now, we've taken the time in the past few lessons to study what the Bible means when it speaks of the sun and the moon ceasing to shine. In all the prophetic texts, it's always a judgment text and it's always a day of Yahweh. And it's always figurative, symbolic language of the destruction of high-ranking people, officials, governments, or rulers. Many times, it's a reference to destruction of the rebellious people inside of the nation of Israel. And it's no different here. Joel 2.31, quoted in Acts 2.20 by Peter, is a reference to those inside of the nation of Israel who do not call upon Yahweh. They are that sun that turns to darkness. They are that moon that turns to blood. Their position is snuffed out. Their light goes out. And it's all because they refuse to accept Yahweh's means of salvation in His only begotten Son, the promised Messiah of Israel and for Israel, Yeshua of Nazareth. Now I want you to notice here that Peter continues in verse 21 by quoting Joel 2.32. It's a judgment text, but he gives some good news in here. And he says, whoever of them calls on the name of Yahweh they are the ones who will be saved or delivered. In other words, Peter is saying, judgment is coming, judgment is near, the end of the age, the last days are now, the old covenant is coming to a close, and the messianic age, the time of the Messiah, is beginning. The Messiah has come, messianic prophecy has been fulfilled, he's lived in accordance with the Torah, He's preached the good news of the kingdom. He's been wounded for our sins, bruised for our iniquities. He's been resurrected by Yahweh. He's ascended into heaven at the right hand of Yahweh. Yahweh's favorite verse in Scripture. you know Yahweh has a favorite verse in the, in the Bible? His favorite verse is Psalm 110 verse 1. It's the most quoted verse in the New Testament of the Old where David says, speaking by the Spirit, Yahweh says to my Master, Yahweh is speaking to David's master, who is Yeshua the Messiah. You sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That verse is quoted more than any other verse in the New Testament. That's Yahweh's favorite scripture verse right there. And that's because it depicts the ruling and reigning Messiah at the right hand of Yahweh. All authority has been given to him both in heaven and on earth. Peter is preaching about this in Acts chapter 2. And he tells the people there, the men of Israel there, if you call out to Yahweh, and what he means there is this, if you repent to Yahweh, they had rejected the Messiah that he sent. That's what they had despised. The prophet that Deuteronomy 18 said, Moses prophesied would be like him. Acts chapter 3, Peter quotes Deuteronomy 18 and applies it to Yeshua the Messiah. And Yahweh says, if you don't listen to this prophet, you will be destroyed. Peter is preaching this in Acts chapter 2. But there's hope. Because if you call out to Yahweh and you repent, you'll be delivered. You'll be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. But destruction will come upon the rebellious within the nation of Israel. Though the children of Israel be as the stars of the sky in number, it is only a remnant that will be saved. Those who do not call upon Yahweh, those who do not accept the means that He hath sent, 
they will be destroyed. They're the many in contrast to the few. Notice what Peter then does right after quoting Joel 2, 28-32. Right after he quotes Joel 2, he starts preaching about Yeshua of Nazareth. Look at this. Acts 2, 22-24. Notice who he's talking to. Men of Israel. They're the ones there on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Yeshua of Nazareth was a man pointed out to you, follow the pronouns, you, the men of Israel, pointed out to you by the Mighty One with miracles, wonders, and signs that the Mighty One did among you through Him, just as you yourselves know. Quick note here. The first message or sermon that Peter preaches after the ascension of Yeshua, read that sermon. There's nothing in that sermon about a second person of the Trinity. There's nothing about Yahweh wrapping Himself in a robe of flesh. There's nothing about any of that. All of it's about Yahweh appointing a man, His Son, and then His Son dying, being resurrected, Him inviting Him up to sit at His right hand, and Him ruling and reigning until all enemies are put under His feet. Yahweh made Him Master and Messiah. Had Yahweh not made Him Master, He wouldn't be Master. Had Yahweh not made Him Messiah, He would not be Messiah. He's the Master of King David. He's the Messiah, meaning the Anointed One of Yahweh. And they had to accept Him in order to be forgiven. Yahweh did miracles through Him. Verse 23, Though He was delivered up according to the Mighty One's determined plan and foreknowledge, you, the pronoun still follows, the you there is the men of Israel, you used lawless people, the lawless people is the Roman government, to nail Him to a cross and to kill Him. The Mighty One raised Him up ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The whole message here is Yahweh appointing Yeshua, the man from Nazareth. Yahweh had predestined that he died, but the men of Israel fulfilled it by using lawless people to crucify the Messiah. Peter preaches about Yahweh's salvation, Yeshua of Nazareth. Yahweh pointed out the man Yeshua with miracles, signs, and wonders that Yahweh did. Notice who did them. Yahweh did them through the Messiah. Yahweh sent this man to save Israel from their sins. Yeshua was delivered up according to Yahweh's predetermined plan, but it was the men of Israel who used the wicked Roman government to nail him to a cross and to kill him. This proves that the people who cried out, crucify him, crucify him, were Israelites. They had rejected their Messiah. In all likelihood, some of the same men that yelled, Crucify Him, were there in Acts 2 listening to Peter preach. And that's why he starts off in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. The Messiah has come. The one that you use lawless people to kill. Yahweh appointed Him. And that's why on the third day, He resurrected from the tomb. Death could not hold Him. His body did not even see corruption. Yahweh wouldn't suffer His Holy One to see corruption. Yahweh raised Yeshua from death. Now, you can go on to read the remainder of Acts 2, the whole chapter, where Peter tells the men of Israel in attendance that day to repent. And as I alluded to a little bit earlier, normally we would think that repent means stop breaking a particular law or laws of Yahweh. But remember, Peter is preaching to the men of Israel. They know the law. They know the Torah. They're familiar with the law. They're 
their lifestyle is one of law predominantly. I'm not saying they were all perfect and complete, but their lifestyle was one of law. They're at the day of Pentecost, which is a law. They're there, keeping the feast. What they needed to repent from is their denial of the Messiah. They were the ones who desired the death of Yeshua. And unless they repented of rejecting Him, Yahweh's promised Messiah, they would be judged. Their sun would go dark and their moon would turn to blood. There would be judgment in the first century. It was the biblical last days. It was the last days of old covenant Israel. But it was the beginning of new covenant believing in the Messiah, Israel. That's what the Bible means by the phrase the last days. The last days of the old covenant Israel. Read the parable of the vineyard in Matthew 21 where Yeshua ends by saying, the kingdom shall be taken from you and given to another nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And the nation that he's talking about is the nation of believing Israelites from both the houses of Judah and also the house of Gentilized Israel. As Joel 2.32 says, there would be survivors. It would be those who called out to Yahweh that would be delivered. And calling out to Yahweh there means accepting the salvation that Yahweh not rejecting His Messiah. That's what it means. Those who received Yahweh's Messiah would shine brightly. Those who rejected Yahweh's Messiah, their lights would go out. And there's so much more to this. I've even spoken some things that I did not want to speak in the sermon because I've got to iron some some things out. And that's for another series that I'm working on right now on, on Matthew chapter 21, 23, 24, and 25. But for now, I'll just end by saying I'm persuaded that Joel 2, 28-32 was fulfilled in the first century like Peter said it was. I do not believe that we're waiting any future specific fulfillment of the prophet Joel, just like we're not awaiting any fulfillment of Isaiah 53. The Bible was written for our learning and our example, and we can find principles and applications for us along the way. But let us never forget that the books and the letters had a specific audience. And we must interpret and understand all texts within the confines, context, culture, and figures of speech that they're written to, or that they are written in. The last days defined biblically is not today. It's not today. I'll be teaching more about this soon. And the scriptures, I believe, will continue to dispel the so-called prophecy experts today. And I think that you'll be amazed to see how easy it is to understand texts like these if we just allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. So, let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I love you. I thank you and I praise you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your prophets. Thank you for your apostles. And thank you for your son. Father Yahweh, I pray we would take these things and continue to mull and study and research and be good Bereans of your word. I love you. I love your son. Continue to lead and guide me and everyone in here in the truths of sacred scripture. Through Yeshua the Messiah, your son, I pray to you, Father Yahweh.